Good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. It is a joy uh, and an honor to be with you. Great. All right. It is a joy and an honor to be with you, uh, to meet with God with you uh, together this morning as we open his word and see uh, what he might reveal to us. Um, Taylor read for us uh, kind of a, very, a long swath of texts, and I'll tell you honestly, um, this series, um, as, as Taylor said, is called Christ of the Covenants, um, and we're, we're pointing at how Christ is the fulfillment of all of these covenants, and to understand the story of Noah, it really spans Genesis 6 through 9, and so that kind of gave you a snapshot of the situation on earth um, and the covenant, really part of the covenant that God made with Noah and his family. Uh, and, but what we'll do today, as I, as I preach through this, uh, we'll see how we get there. Uh, but my goal this morning is to point you straight to Christ. Like Taylor said, Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Noah. Christ is the fulfillment of all the covenants. Um, and, and one of the ways that I heard it described is this. If you picture yourself, um, uh, we, if you picture yourself standing in the ocean, um, just beside the shore, and you picture the tide coming in and waves coming to hit you, um, the, the successive uh, iterations, the successive covenants that God makes with, his man, uh, with, with mankind uh, progress, and they build on one another. They're all part of this one big covenant of grace um, that, God is, that, it, that God has given to us. Um, and so if you, if you picture the first wave is the covenant with Adam, second wave, covenant with Noah, third wave, Moses or Abraham, fourth wave, Moses, fifth wave, David, and then the waters recede, and then this tidal wave comes uh, as that is the new covenant in Christ, uh, which completes everything that God uh, has been pointing towards with these covenants leading up to that. So that's my goal this morning, um, is that through the story of Noah that we would see why uh, we need Jesus Christ, and hopefully that we would see that the story that the Bible tells um, is worth placing our eternity uh, in. And so, um, as we go through this story, I want to go through three uh, simple points. Um, and I'm probably not going to tell you as I go from one point to the other. Uh, but the, the bulk of our time is going to be spent in point one, just looking at the story of Noah, uh, the story of the flood uh, and the covenant God gave with Noah, gave to Noah. Point two, we're going to look at how Noah ultimately failed as a covenant head. And then point three, we're going to look at how Christ fulfilled the covenant God gave to Noah. And so with that, let's go ahead and uh, begin. Let's dig into the text. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6 starts like this. It says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the wickedness of man uh, was evil, or was great in the earth, so much so that God regretted that he had made man. He was sorry that he had made man. The King James Version said, uh, uh, translation of the Bible says, it repented God that he had made man. God wished that he hadn't made man. Um, and so what happened? How, how did we get here? Uh, to give a little bit of context, um, if you were here last week, you heard Taylor talk about God's covenant with Adam uh, and the creation of all things. Uh, in, in Genesis 1, the Bible starts with this story of creation. Um, God created all things, and he created them good. Um, he, was, he created the earth, the heavens and the earth, the land, the, all the creatures that were in the earth, and then he created Adam and Eve last. They were the pinnacle of his creation. Um, he, he made Adam and Eve, and it was only after he'd made Adam and Eve that he looked and said, behold, his creation was very good. Adam and Eve were made in his image. He placed them in the garden 
uh, in this place called the Garden of Eden, paradise. He said, I'll be with you. I'm with you. The only thing that I don't want you to do is eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, for on the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. Um, that's, the, that's the only restriction God placed on Adam and Eve. Um, and everything else was for them. They had each other. They had God. They had the rest of paradise, all of creation. But we see that uh, the serpent in the garden tempted Adam and Eve to question God, to, te- to question, you know, did God say, you know, are you really going to die? Um, you know, is, is this true that you're going to die? Maybe God just doesn't want you to become like him because that's really what's going to happen if you eat the fruit. And so they're, they're tempted and they fall and they sin. And they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And in the years following, we see the effects of this single sin uh, kind of multiply incredibly quickly. Adam and Eve had two sons named Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain uh, and Abel both brought offerings to the Lord, and the Lord was pleased with Abel's offering uh, and not with Cain's. And so Cain, in jealousy, killed Abel. Um, Adam and Eve's son killed his brother. uh, And from there, things just get worse. People spread out. They build their own cities. Violence characterized all humanity. When we get to Genesis 6, chapter 10, uh, or Genesis 6, uh, we're merely 10 generations after Adam and Eve. Um, and it's just taken 10 generations for wickedness to fill the earth. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Noah with Russell Crowe. came out two years ago. I don't know how you feel about um, Bible adaptation movies. Uh, but one thing, so I was talking with a, a friend of mine, a, re, a new friend of mine who just became a Christian a couple of weeks ago. We were going through the story of the Bible, and we got to the story of Noah. And he said, oh, I know that one. Uh, I've seen the movie. <laughs> okay. Great. Uh, there's part... And so I thought, you know, I, I, in my mind, I thought, okay, you know, rock creatures. I told him, you know, the rock creatures in there, they're not really in the Bible. There's a stowaway on the ark, an evil king, not in the Bible. But Noah, Noah's in the Bible. Um, and and what, I, what I saw, what I realized when we were talking about it is um, I saw the movie Noah. If you saw it, you might remember this scene. If you didn't see it, I don't know that I'd recommend it. But if you saw it, the beginning scenes of the movie begin with a desolation. And I think the, the, the movie captures pretty well um, the fact that uh, the earth was filled with wickedness. Noah, Noah watches his dad get killed before his eyes. Um, there's roving, just wandering rapers and pillagers. I mean, it's awful. There's, there's, this, there's this tone of hopelessness at the beginning of the movie that I think captures well um, what uh, this story is talking about. If you can picture that, it's probably pretty close uh, to what it was like in those days. Um, every man for himself... Uh, pride and greed running rampant, wickedness covering the earth. And in verse 6, uh, it says, it grieved, him, it grieved him to his heart. When God saw his creation, it grieved him to his heart. His heart was full of sorrow. God's not a robot. Um, he's not an impersonal, emotionless being with nothing to lose. He was filled with joy when he created man. And now that he sees the brokenness of creation because of sin, he laments um, here he sees his creation perverted by evil, um, and it, it causes him great sorrow. And here's the thing, though. Uh, two of God's attributes are, are that God is holy and that he is just. Um, he is holy and just in his holiness, which means he is set apart. In his holiness, he can't stand to look at sin. And in his justice, as a just God, he can't simply cover his eyes and pretend not to see what's going on. He can't just pretend that sin is not happening and do nothing about it. And so in verse 7, the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, 
man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So it's a pretty just desolate picture that we get of this what was once beautiful creation. But then as we read on, right after this, verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We're introduced to this man named Noah. Uh, Who is Noah? Uh, Noah is a name that literally means rest. Uh, In Genesis 5, verse 29, it says when his father Lamech named him uh, Noah, he said this, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So this Noah... Uh, the one who was to bring rest to the earth found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we read on. Verse 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This verse, what this verse does, it places Noah in complete contrast with the rest of humanity. Uh, He's described as a righteous man, which means that he was right in his relationship with both God and man. He wasn't involved in the killing and violence that surrounded him. He's described as blameless, which is a word that means complete, not sinless, but uh, it's also good to think of that as the word, a word that means wholehearted. He was wholehearted in his devotion to God. His affections were not for the world, but were for God. And it says he walked with God, which means he was in direct communion with God, uh, that he was in this intimate, close relationship with him. Uh, and another thing that, that, that shows this is that God speaks directly to Noah. Um, just a few verses later, God tells Noah that he's determined to make an end of all flesh by bringing a flood over the earth. He tells Noah to build an ark. And in the middle of these instructions, in verse 18, God says to Noah, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And so God pauses. He essentially says, Noah, there is this disaster coming, but I'm going to preserve you through it. Look around you, Noah. It's filled, the world is filled with violence, with murder. It pains me to see it, and I'm going to do away with it. I'm going to cover the earth with a flood, bring an end of all life, uh, to all life, but not you, Noah. Uh, I want you to build an ark. I want you to listen carefully to how I want you to build it. Don't build it any other way, because any other way would not be sufficient to protect you from my wrath. He gives him specific instructions. Uh, and he, says, he essentially says, I've chosen you to carry on the line of humanity and I will establish my covenant with you. We'll come back to what this covenant is in just a moment, but I need to point out uh, something here, I think. Um, It's significant to notice how God speaks of this covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. The fact that God calls it my covenant speaks to the Lord's gracious initiative. Notice that Noah didn't ask God to make this covenant with him. Furthermore, Uh, And I'm going to pause on this for just a moment. Noah did not earn this salvation. Um, His righteousness did not cause God's grace. In fact, I would argue that his righteousness was because of God's grace towards him. Let me explain. Back in verse verse 8, we see that God's favor falls on Noah. It says, Noah found favor with the Lord. I'd argue that it's no accident that this comes before the characterization of Noah being called righteous and blameless and the man who walked with God in verse 9. But furthermore, verse 8 is not the first time we see God's grace towards Noah. And let me back up a little bit. Bear with me. I really do think this is going to be helpful for us. In Genesis chapter 4, it's a chapter that starts with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. Um, And as the chapter continues, we follow the line of Cain for several generations. And at the end of chapter 4, we see that Adam and Eve are blessed with another son. They name him Seth. 
Eve, in verse 25 of chapter 4, says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Eve herself identifies her son Seth as a gracious gift from God. And the chapter ends in verse 26, which says, To Seth also a son was born, and his name was called Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then chapter 5 tells a story. Uh, chapter 4 had talked about the, the, this lineage of Cain. Chapter 5 talks about the lineage descended from Seth. Um, and you see the beginnings of two, these two genealogical lines forming. Uh, the line of Cain is a line of violence and evil, and the line of Seth is, is a line of grace. Um, but while at the end of Genesis 4, uh, we see a glimmer of hope when people begin to call upon the name of the Lord, just a few generations later, we reach the point where God says that wickedness has so covered the earth that God regretted that he made man. So the line of violence and wickedness had prevailed so that the only one left in this line of grace, this line of blessing, was Noah. So... Um, I say all that to say this, when it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, this is not because Noah earned this favor from the Lord. It's because of the plan that God had mentioned. Taylor talked about this last week. God mentioned to Adam and Eve that God would want, that he would one day raise up one who would crush the head of the serpent once and for all from the line of woman. Uh, and it's because Noah found himself in this line of promise, this line of grace, that he found himself in favor uh, in the eyes of the Lord. So his righteousness, his blamelessness, his walking with the Lord, these things weren't the cause of God's favor. They were because of God's favor and God's grace towards him. And as we read on, we see that Noah does all that God commanded him, uh, which is no idle phrase. Uh, oh, that God could say that about any of us, right? Um, no idle phrase, but he, he does all that God commanded him, and then the flood happens. And so we fast forward. God tells Noah to get in the ark. And then in chapter 7 and chapter 8, we read about the flooding rains. God opens uh, the depths and lets down water from the sky, and the, the earth is covered with a flood. We read about the flood. We read about the stop of the rain, and then we read about the, the waters slowly receding. Um, all in all, the, the flood covered the earth for about a year. Uh, and then in chapter 8... Verse 16, God says to Noah, go out from the ark, and he does. Um, he, his family, all the animals that were with him, they went out from the ark. So what had happened was the earth had been filled with violence, and God poured out his wrath on the world through a flood. But even in the context of judgment, even in the context of this, which is probably the most violent story in the Old Testament, um, we see God's grace in preserving Noah and his family. In the midst of judgment, we see God's grace. And as soon as they leave the ark, uh, we read on in chapter 8, Noah builds an altar to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. When he does this, the Lord smells this pleasing aroma, and then he makes a covenant with Noah. And let's look at this covenant for just a minute. Remember, there's promises and conditions. Um, you probably talked about this last week, maybe. Um, a covenant is a commitment that has uh, promises and conditions. And so let's look, at, um, let's look at these. The central promise of the covenant that God makes with Noah, uh, which you find in eight, chapter 8, verse uh, 21, uh, all the way through 9, chapter 9, verse, uh, verse 17. The central promise of this covenant is that God will preserve his creation. That's the central promise that runs through 
that, that runs through this covenant. He makes this covenant with Noah and his family and all of the animals that never again will he make an end of all flesh as he did with the flood. He says that in uh, 8.21 in chapter 9, verse 11. And not only that, God also commits to maintaining day and night, season after season, so that time continues to progress in regular fashion. He says that in chapter 8, verse 22. So this is why even today, in the midst of, of, of life, which is unpredictable, um, we have even this small bit of, uh, of, of security in the fact that we know that uh, so long as Jesus doesn't come back before then, um, day and night will continue um, as they were orchestrated here in the covenant with Noah. In addition, uh, the other aspect of the promise that God gives in this covenant, implicit in the covenant, when God says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, uh, he's essentially promising that Adam, or that, not Adam and Eve, that Noah and his family uh, get the blessing, get the benefit of joining with him in spreading his glory throughout the earth. They're his image bearers in creation, man and woman made in God's image. And when God says, be fruitful and multiply, God is inviting them in with him, saying, you are my strategy for filling the earth with my glory, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful promise. Um, and as we look at the, so, so those are the promises of the covenant. Let's look at the conditions of this covenant. And we'll see um, that the conditions that God places, the commands that he gives Noah and his family, um, we realize as we look at them that this is not the creation of a new covenant. It's simply a reiteration uh, in many ways of the covenant that God gave with Adam. Uh, and Adam and, in, uh, as Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply, Noah and his family are told to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 9, verses 1 and 7. Uh, as Adam and Eve were given dominion over the animals, so too the animals are delivered into the hands of Noah and his family in Genesis 9, verse 2. Furthermore, although he did not say this to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because there was no need to before the fall, he makes it clear, God makes it clear to Noah uh, that given that mankind is made in God's image, life is precious. And in this covenant, God requires uh, that murder is to be repaid with the death penalty. We see that for the first time in the, in the Bible in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. And then the last, uh, the last kind of condition to this covenant uh, is... is is that even the Sabbath, which God gave to Adam and Eve uh, as a day of rest, is echoed with Noah, given the meaning of Noah's name, that, that he was the one who would bring us rest. And so we see these themes that God carries into uh, this covenant with Noah that come from Adam, uh, the covenant he made with Adam. And then finally, um, this is, we have the rainbow given as a beautiful sign of God's faithful, uh, faithfulness to his people. The rainbow is a sign. There was no sign in the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam, but there is a sign here in the Noahic covenant. Uh, I want to read this. I'll just read this. Uh, Genesis 9, verses 12 through 17. God says this, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant that I make between me and the earth. When I, bring, when I bring the clouds of the earth and see the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So God gives to Noah and his family uh, this beautiful sign. Um, every Noah and his family, every man, woman, and child who have come since then, including us, get to look at the rainbow as a beautiful sign of God's gracious covenant 
of preservation that he gives to Noah and his family. So, just as in the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve, God could simply have, have wiped the slate clean and started afresh. He didn't. Similarly here, while Noah could have just ended all life on earth, um, his plan of redemption uh, didn't include that detail. Um, he, his plan of redemption included preserving um, the line of promise, preserving Noah. Noah was chosen to be saved from the flood. He and his family threw an ark. And coming out of the flood, God made a gracious covenant with Noah. Let me pause here uh, before I move on and make uh, uh, what I think is an important observation. In the context of God's judgment, I said this before, in the context of judgment, of God's judgment, we see God's grace. And God's grace comes here in the form of particular uh, redemption. Out of thousands and perhaps millions, Noah was saved. And what that means is that thousands and perhaps millions of human lives were brought to an end. I, I heard it put this way once. Um, if you grew up in the church, if you have a background in Christianity, growing up you probably had, uh, we're familiar with the story of Noah and the ark. You probably had a painting on the wall, uh, or maybe the whole wall was painted a Noah's ark mural. Um, did some coloring books that had Noah and the ark. Probably in those childhood memories, uh, you don't include the, the bodies of those floating around the ark who didn't make it into the ark, right? Um, doesn't make for an encouragement less, encouraging lesson for kids. Um, but you see, the thing is, that's, that's what it was like. The vast majority of life on earth, every person and animal who is not in that ark died in the flood. That's what it says in the text. Uh, and the natural reaction that most of us have to, that, to this story, to that detail, is, well, that's just not fair. And I get it. Um, I, I read this for the first time once, too. Um, but as we read through this text, we notice how much Moses, the, one who, the, the, the man who wrote the book of Genesis, we notice how much Moses stresses the wickedness of man. He goes to great lengths to describe the extent to which wickedness and violence had spread and how God was grieved by what he saw. And he does this, I think, to communicate something. Without understanding sin's culpability, we cannot understand true justice. In other words, without understanding how wrong sin is, we can't possibly understand what the right punishment for sin would be. Only those who see sin as inherently deserving of God's judgment can cope with God's action. In the Garden of Eden, God said, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, he said to Adam and Eve, on the, on the day you eat of that fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. If we don't see that sin results in death, then then who can cope with God's action in this story? There's a story about St. Anselm, uh, who's a, an 11th century Middle Age. I don't know if he was in his Middle Age. He was in the Middle Ages, um, historian in the 11th century. He's a pastor, um, and uh, he was teaching a group of students about the fact that God judges people and also that he saves particular people by his grace. And one of his students spoke up and said, that's not fair. And Anselm's response to his student was, Aha, I see that you have not rightly understood sin. Only those who see sin as inherently deserving of God's judgment can cope with God's action uh, in this story. It's because of sin that all mankind deserved the judgment of God to fall upon them, 
but by God's grace, he chose to preserve a remnant so that his covenant of grace, his promise of redemption uh, that dates back to Genesis 3.15 could continue to unfold. So Noah is saved. Where Adam failed to uphold the covenant that God gave him, Noah now stood as the head of God's covenant of grace. There is great hope that things might be different this time. But as we read on, uh, not long afterwards, Noah fails as the covenant head. Uh, In just two verses, Genesis 9, verses 20 and 21, everything unravels. I'll read this. It's a short story. Uh, Verse 20 says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Um, And then the the story goes on to describe how uh, Noah was disgraced as a result of his drunkenness. And here's what happens. So Noah gets out of this boat that had just preserved him through God's judgment. He builds an altar. He offers sacrifices. God gives him a gracious covenant. And then right after that, it says that Noah's sons had sons. And then he planted a vineyard. And then he made wine. And then he got drunk. Uh, So just four verses after the end of this beautiful covenant, uh, we see that Noah gets drunk and is left naked and ashamed, exactly how Adam was in the garden. And the parallels between this story and what happened in the Garden of Eden are are pretty amazing. Adam and Eve were given the Garden of Eden. Noah planted a vineyard. Adam and Eve consume the fruit of their garden improperly when they sin, and Noah consumes the fruit improperly when he gets drunk on the wine. Adam and Eve are left naked and ashamed, and Noah finds himself, too, naked and ashamed. Here's the thing. With the command to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, Noah misuses creation. Instead of subduing creation, he is subdued by creation. Instead of partaking of the fruit as it was designed to be, he partook of it indulgently uh, and was left ashamed. He was supposed to be a man of rest and peace, and he instead became a man of drunkenness. And drunkenness is, at its root, a perversion of rest. Noah was previously contrasted with the rest of the world, and now we see that he's just like the rest of the world. So like Adam, he was the beneficiary of a great promise, and like Adam, he failed to respect the covenant obligations. So what does this mean then? Well, when Adam failed to uphold the requirements of the covenant, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that uh, there would be one who would come through the line of woman to crush the head of the serpent. With the curse, though, things slowly degenerated to a point where God was sorry that he had created mankind at all. And eventually that culminated in a flood to wipe, uh, wipe all flesh from the earth. Now with Noah, God had promised to, pers- uh, to preserve mankind in creation. He gave uh, mankind a covenant sign as a part of this promise. He gave them the rainbow. Yet so quickly Noah fails as this new covenant head. Just as has happened in the years following Adam and Eve, the gradual darkening of the world, so too we read on in the, in the generations after Noah that sin and pride once again filled the earth. And so the question is, was there another flood coming? Right? Just as God had sent a flood in the days of Noah, shouldn't there be another flood? Because it seems like the same thing is happening. Well, we know that this can't be, right? Because God promised not to make an end of all flesh as he did with the flood. Uh, And he gave the rainbow as a sign of that covenant. But at the same time, God is a God of justice. And he can't let sin go unaddressed. Let's think back for a minute. 
We know that when Adam and Eve sinned, they fell under the curse that God pronounced in Genesis 3 as a result of their sin, they and all of their offspring with them. And so Noah, being a descendant of Adam and Eve, uh, was born under this curse of sin and death as well. So when Noah found favor with the Lord, when, Noah, uh, when God chose Noah to preserve through the flood and give his covenant to, this only happened by God's grace. You see, in Noah's very DNA, there was this, the curse of sin and death. He, too, was a sinner in need of grace, and he, too, deserved to pass away in the flood of God's wrath. So when God chose Noah to be the one who would be the recipient of this covenant, he was not only preserved through the flood, but he was saved through this flood. And this expands our understanding of covenant a little bit. Uh, so this is no, the Noahic covenant. The covenant God made with Noah is, is called the covenant of preservation. But we see that God's covenant is also a covenant of salvation. The Noahic covenant uh, pointed to salvation. It was truly the first picture of God's covenant of grace freely bestowed by God on his creatures. But the problem still remained. Central, uh, central to the story of Noah and the flood is the fact that, uh, is this idea of judgment comes from the fact that God is a God of justice. That he simply can't pretend, to see sin, uh, can't pretend not to see sin uh, and do nothing. And I want to pause and illustrate this for a moment. God can't simply ignore wrong, and neither can we either. When someone wrongs us, we don't just let it slide. We care about justice too. And that's a result of being made in God's image. You might be thinking, well, sometimes I let things slide. We have our coping mechanisms. Yes, we, when we get wrong, we don't always demand punishment for someone. Uh, but we really don't let things just slide. Let me give you three examples. First, we give it time. When we're wronged, uh, sometimes we remember that we've been wronged in the past and that it usually gets better over time. We say that time will heal, and usually it does. Um, while we, never, we usually never completely forget something that's happened, we realize that the, the effects of that wrong diminish over time, uh, and they, they often do. We do this because we don't have perfect memories. Our memories do fade. Um, very few people have photographic memories, and those who do actually struggle with this. They struggle to forgive wrongs because they can't forget, uh, they can't forget bad memories. So first, we give it time. Second thing that we do is we'll put ourselves in other people's shoes, reminding ourselves that nobody's perfect. Uh, we think about the times that we've wronged other people and say things like, I know I've done that before, so it's okay. I'll get over it. We'll say, I've done the same to you, or maybe one day I'll probably do the same thing to you. And so it's only fair. Um, it would be unfair for me to expect you to be perfect. And so we use that kind of fairness logic uh, to help us let things slide. Third, third thing we do um, is, is often we, we look to see if this person is paying for the fact that they wronged us. Um, we, we look for an apology. We look to see if there's visible signs of remorse. Um, if they've stolen something, did they give it back? Um, if they broke the law, did they go to jail or pay the fine or whatever? Um, if they do these things, then in a sense, we, we kind of think they've paid the price for it. Okay, I got it. So, um, so we can move on from this. There's a bunch of other examples, but um, all of these things are ways we have of dealing with the fact that we really don't pretend that we haven't been wronged. We can't do that. We take being wronged seriously, and so too does God. Um, but here's the thing. None of those coping mechanisms work with God. First, God's memory is perfect. He remembers and is intimately affected by every last detail of every last sin, and his memories don't fade. 
Second, God is holy. He's completely unlike us. He is perfect, and he has never sinned against anyone. So the, the, the concept of fairness, of thinking, you know, comparing the fact that he might have wronged someone in the past doesn't work for him. And third, when God demands, if he expects payment for our offense, it's clear that no amount of offerings that we can give to him can atone for the wrong that we've done him. As it says in Isaiah 64, the best we have to offer are but filthy rags, uh, which, when compared to his holiness. See, God simply can't ignore wrongdoing. It's against his nature. He's acutely aware of every sin. Every sin is offensive to him, and judgment must be exacted as a result. But here is the good news. It's true that time doesn't heal, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In Galatians 4, God is totally unlike us in our sin, and yet God became like us in every respect, yet without sin. Hebrews 4. Nothing we could ever do could pay the price for our sin. But the good news is that Christ came to pay the price for our sins by burying them in his body on the tree. In 1 Peter 2. Describes that. And so there's this beautiful good news in the midst of God's judgment. He gives us grace. And let me go back to the question I asked just a moment ago, though, to, to flesh this out. Noah's failure points to the fact that sin was still present in the world and in the human heart. And in the generations following Noah, we see a familiar downward spiral into sin, violence, uh, and wickedness. And so the question is this, is there another flood coming? The first thought might be, surely not. Right? We just looked at how God promised to Noah never to cover the, you know, to make an end of all flesh like he did with the flood. He gave him a, a rainbow as a sign of that covenant. But at the same time, since sin is still present, then judgment must be coming because God is a God of justice. And here's the answer. There is another flood coming. As we read through the Old Testament, God sent prophet after prophet to warn his people of the coming day of God's wrath. The day is coming. The day is coming. He warned his people. In, in our text, things had looked hopeful for a moment, but ultimately Noah had failed, and God's people were waiting for their true covenant head. And when we fast forward, we see God's ultimate answer for our redemption in Galatians 4. I just said part of it. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God had promised redemption through the line of the woman, and it came in the fullness of time in his one and only son. On the cross, on the cross, Christ was drowned in a flood of God's wrath so that we could be preserved through God's judgment. From Genesis 3.15 and on, God had been promising redemption for his people, but it's clear that this redemption comes at a cost. You see, the problem is that in order for a person to be saved, every single sin that that person has committed must be paid for. For Noah, the flood washed away the wickedness of the others in the world at the time, but it did not wash away his sin. For God's promises to be fully realized then, the ultimate price had to be paid. I'm convinced that when it says that the, that the wickedness that filled the earth grieved the Lord, I'm convinced that part of this grief that God experienced when he saw the wickedness of the earth was the grief that came with knowing what he had to do. God knew that one day he would send his only son to live the life that no one who had gone before him or would come after him could live. Sent his son to live the life that Noah couldn't live, that Adam couldn't live, that none of us could live, to die the death that each of us deserved. But 
Jesus became a curse for us. He was drowned in the flood of God's wrath for us. Every sin that Noah had committed, every sin that I've committed, that you've committed, Jesus offers forgiveness for this. He had those in mind when he went to the cross. We've been freed from the penalty of our sin in what Christ has done for us on the cross. And the reality is this, to go just a little bit further. The reality is this. God's plan has always been to bring his people back into direct relationship with him. And in order to do that, the problem of sin needs to be dealt with completely. It doesn't take much to to look around and see that we are still surrounded by sin and suffering. The reality is, though, that there is a day coming when when that will be dealt with. Like I said, throughout the Bible, this day is described as the coming day of wrath, which will be a terrifying and wonderful day when all that is evil, all that is wicked, all that is bad will be purged from the earth. In the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi describes it as a day burning like an oven when all of the arrogant and evildoers will be made stubble. This time the flood will not be a flood of water, but it will be a flood of fire. God did not break his promise saying that he wouldn't cover the, flood, cover the, the, the earth with a flood again. This time that the flood will be a flood of fire. Jesus himself compares it to the flood of Noah, saying in Matthew 24, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This day is coming and it will be indeed terrifying and wonderful. And it is this day that Jesus had in mind when he went to the cross for our sins. And I think it would be remiss, I would be remiss if we talked about Noah and the flood, the story of God's judgment, and didn't take an opportunity to lean into the fact that this is exactly what God had in mind. That there is real judgment coming uh, on the day of wrath. But when Jesus... Uh, when, when Jesus went to the cross, God made a way for us through it. He gave himself to us so that we might be preserved through the day of his wrath. And far from being a day to be feared with anguish, if you are in Christ, this is a day to be eagerly anticipated. It's a day described in Revelation as a day when there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering. It is going to be a good and wonderful day. And, and this day is described as the day that will usher in the rest of eternity when, God, when Christ will come back for his people. We will sit down at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb and toast to the eternity ahead that we have to enjoy God face to face once again. That. That is the good news of the gospel. That is, when we come to a story like Noah, we're confronted with the fact that God is a God of judgment. But when we are pointed to the cross, as we said each of these covenants do, is when we are pointed to the cross, Noah died not having received the promise of God. Right? All of these men, there's this chapter in the book of Hebrews that says there are men and women throughout the ages who died not having received the promise, but when Christ came in the fullness of time, God preserved this time. He said, it, he said I'm never going to interfere with this until my plan of redemption is complete in the, in the covenant of preservation with Noah. And part of that covenant was that he was going to make time for Christ to come in the fullness of time, uh, born of a woman to redeem those uh, who were under the law. Let me do this. I'm going to skip ahead and close uh, with, a, with a question and a picture. The question is this. If someone came to you today uh, and asked you if you thought that the world was better today uh, than it was yesterday, um, what would your answer be? 
if someone asked you if, if you thought that the world was better today than it was 500 years ago, what would your answer be? And the reason I ask that question is because I think the answer to that question will probably define how you see the world and how you see God's work in the world. See, if you were a Christian, then I would beg you to, to consider the fact that because of our belief in what Christ did on the cross, because of our belief in, in who the Holy Spirit is and what he came to do in his church, our answer to that question must be yes. The world is better today than it was yesterday because of the church. The world is better today than it was 500 years ago because of the church. In the days of Adam and Noah, the commandment to be fruitful and multiply turned into a multiplication of sin and wickedness. But because of what Christ has done, he bought for himself a people who are alive on the earth right now, filled with the Spirit, a people that is a temple for God's Holy Spirit. And this original covenant ordinance, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Jesus took and turned around and made it into the second great commission, right, saying, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you until the end of the age. God is building his church right now. There's, there's this contrast between light and darkness in the New Testament. And we see that this is, this is why we are a church-planting church. Because we believe that, that Christians really are the temple for the Holy Spirit. And we are going to keep planting churches because we see churches as new beacons of light that weren't there before. And as we increase in, in the number of churches that we have in the world, as we spread across the face of the earth, we are fulfilling the original covenant that God made with Adam and Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, God's, and, and, and the thing is, leading up to Christ, that wasn't possible. Leading up to Christ and what Christ did, that wasn't possible. When Christ took the cross, he died for our sins. He rose again uh, for our salvation. And then he said to his disciples, he says, better that I go so that I can send my Holy Spirit who will be with you. And God is with us. God is empowering us um, as his people to go forth and multiply and live out this old covenant, this old covenant promise, this old covenant uh, requirement to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I don't say that to discount any of the awful things that are happening in the world. Um, believe me, I know. I'm, I, today is it's a, it's a beautiful example. Today is, is a Persecuted Church Sunday, uh, where churches around the world are praying for our brothers and sisters who are, uh, who are suffering, who are in the midst of persecution, yet are trying to gather nonetheless because of the hope that they have in Christ. Um, I, I, don't, I don't say that to diminish the fact that there is evil in the world. There is great evil in the world, um, and there are great godly concerns for the world. But what I want to do is point you to the covenant of Noah, point you to how Christ fulfilled this covenant with Noah. He became the ark that would preserve us through the day of God's wrath. And he, inv he said, this ark has many rooms. My father's house has many rooms. Go, make disciples, invite them in. Build my church, and I will be with you until the end of the age. The world is a better place than it was yesterday, and we get to go and be fruitful for the sake of Christ until he returns. And I'll close with this. There's no rainbow without the hope of the sun, uh, and there's also no rainbow without the rain. Each rainbow, whenever we see a rainbow, we're reminded that God's grace and God's judgment go hand in hand. 
the rainbow is, 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 is part of one ingredient of the rainbow is the rain, which is a reminder of the flood in the days of Noah. But as the sun shines through the rain, the rain we get to be pointed to Christ who completely fulfilled the, the Noahic covenant and made a way for us through, the, through God's wrath in the future. And every rainbow is pointed upward. God said the rainbow would point upwards toward heaven because God gave that as a promise saying this, this bow is not pointed at you. It's pointed to the heavens where Christ is seated. Christ has always been seated. God gave them a, for, a, just a, a foretaste of the fact that he himself would bear the wrath, uh, the wrath that is due for us. God is a God of justice, but throughout history we see God's judgment going hand in hand with God's grace. And that's why the Bible can say things like God is love, God is merciful and kind. Listen, that mercy for us is Christ. Um, find yourself in the true ark, Jesus Christ, I pray. Let me pray. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful for this morning. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that Holy Spirit, you would be with us. You'd be with us as we contemplate and think upon your word. You'd be with my brothers and sisters in this room, anyone who is here with us, Lord, that, that anything that I said that wasn't from you, that you would identify that for what it is, that your truth would be sown into us powerfully that we would be stirred in our affections for you, for the fact that you pointed us directly to Christ from start to finish in your word. Um, and I ask that you would point us to Christ now. Lord, wherever we are, whatever it is uh, that is captivating our thoughts right now, I pray that if that's not Jesus, that you would help us fix our eyes on him, our beautiful Savior, the true ark in whom we place our hope and through whom we know that we have a direct relationship with you, which is the most wonderful thing life could ever offer because that is why you created us and gave us life in the first place. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.